Okay, which is lesson six, how the church gets involved in discipline. If the brother fails to heed the exhortation of the larger group now that is exhorting him, the original brother with the one or two others, then Jesus says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then uh, Jesus says what to do about it. So here we have again the problem of the lack of repentance, the failure to hear, the unheeding unrepentance of the brother. And this is the stage at which informal discipline, which is handled between one or one or two or three, becomes formal discipline by coming to the attention of the church as the church. And so the OPC Book of Discipline, for example, that at least the uh, officers are fairly familiar with and many of the people in the church, uh, I don't know of anybody who reads the Book of Discipline for fun. Uh, not a bad idea to read it now and again just to see what it has to say. But anyway, uh, it gives us the procedure to follow for formal church discipline, essentially. What steps are the elders of the church to take in dealing with uh, church discipline. And we'll be talking about these issues in this lesson and the next lesson about censures. Uh, the first thing then that we want to deal with has to do with bringing your brother to the sh church. What ought you to do? Here again, we're moving from a private or a semi-private dealing with the problem to more publicity. At this stage, the brother's restoration becomes more a matter of direct concern to the whole church. It's concerned one brother or sister, it's concerned two or three, but now that hasn't brought any fruit of repentance. So now it becomes a matter of concern to the whole church, even if they haven't known anything about it so far. Now the reason for that is, in the first place, sin always affects the whole body of Christ. We are not islands unto ourselves, no matter how much we may think we are. And so when sin infects the body of Christ in your life or mine, it is going to have an impact upon the whole congregation. Uh, and maybe no example is more illustrative of that than Achan's situation in the Old Testament. There were people who died in the battle against Ai that hadn't the faintest notion that Achan had done anything wrong. But they were implicated, and punishment, discipline, came against them even before Achan was identified. And so the sin... Um, of any one of us becomes a problem, a potential for damaging the whole church. Hebrews warns us against the root of bitterness that will grow up and defile many. And uh, because of the propensities that we have for gossip and other kinds of things, you know how quickly problems can spread and sins can become influential in the lives of other people. Because we are interconnected in the body of Christ, then sinful disease begins to affect all of us sooner or later. And if informal discipline isn't enough to deal with the germ, the sin, we're talking about the immune system, then the whole body has to be marshaled against that problem eventually, and that's what happens when the brother is brought to the church. If step one and two do not bring about repentance, then the whole body is going to have to act as a body. And so more people need to know more about the problem and about the solution. Now here again, disclosure doesn't have to be comprehensive. It doesn't have to be exhaustive. The rule of needing to know in order to solve the problem can still be at work. 
And so it comes, first of all, to the attention of the elders, and then through them, if necessary, to the whole congregation. And how much needs to be disclosed and to whom needs to be governed by prudence and wisdom, again, trying to keep the damage, keep the friction down to a minimum as much as possible. But there is a need for publicity, and somewhere along the line that publicity is going to be forthcoming. Now, the role that the elders play is especially important because they function both, on the one hand, as representatives of the church, they represent the church as a whole in session, and also they are ministers of God. They are pastors called by Jesus Christ to shepherd the flock of God by ministering the word of God to them. And so the matter of concern and discipline comes, first of all, to the elders. When we take it to the church in terms of New Testament church discipline, it comes, first of all, to the elders. They are to judge the case. They are to counsel as necessary, and they are the ones who, in the name of Christ and the church, are to pronounce censures if that's necessary. So when they finally deal with the matter, they bring it to the whole church publicly in an orderly fashion with the necessary discretion as well as with the necessary instruction to the whole congregation about how the congregation is supposed to respond to the situation. So ordinarily, if a matter of private discipline comes to the attention of the session, the session will determine what is going to need to take place in order to bring about a resolution, and if it requires a trial or if it requires some kind of censure, they are going to let the word out to the congregation as needed for prayer, and then also the, so the congregation will have enough information to act in a way appropriate to the situation. And that especially becomes critical when uh, disciplinary censures are pronounced, which we'll talk about next time. And so the role of the elders really functions parallel to the role of the apostles in the New Testament as they superintended the administration of church discipline, at least some church discipline, in some of the churches. Think, for example, of the Apostle Paul's uh, exhortations to the Corinthian church uh, and uh, in First and Second Corinthians, and John's exhortation to the church in Third John uh, that helped them solve disciplinary problems in their own midst. So um, uh, telling it to the church then practically means telling it to the elders, first of all, and then the elders bringing it to the attention of the whole congregation as necessary and in the appropriate fashion. Now, sometimes church discipline will begin at this stage. That is, a case may be so notorious, it might be a public sin or it might be a doctrinal problem that doesn't really involve friction between two individual people, but maybe whole congregations with whole other congregations or certain kinds of principles, certain kinds of theological debates that need to be addressed on an official level. And so it is not impossible that church discipline may orig uh, legitimately originate on a sessional level or even on a presbytery level. But most of the time, cases will come through the stages one and two before they come to the attention of the church through the elders. Now, one thing that that means is that in 90% of the cases, or whatever it turns out to be, where stage one and two have already been used, by rights, the case should be pretty clear by the time it first comes to the attention of the elders. That is, if one person has tried to make the case in a clear and effective way to the other 
person and then has brought two or uh, one or two others into that picture with them, there shouldn't be a whole lot of debate over what happened uh, and who said what and why did who say what. Even if there's not repentance yet, there often is agreement as to the facts of the case and even as to the interpretation of the facts of the case. I mean, I don't know about the other elders here, but rarely have I seen a case come all the way through stages one and two where the person comes before the church and says, nobody knows what has happened. Usually everybody knows what has happened that's been involved in it. That's not the question. And rarely do they even say, these guys are falsely accusing me. Most of the time, they say, yes, the accusation is true. And that's why I said earlier, what becomes the overwhelming problem is the hardness of heart that refuses to repent because the person will come to the church and say, yeah, I did it, but I'm not sorry. Yes, it's unbiblical, but I'm going to continue to do it. By the time, in most of the cases, it comes to the session, the facts of the case are usually admitted by all and even often the interpretation of those facts from the biblical standpoint is agreed to by all. The problem is that somebody refuses to repent and to change. And so often the session's job, the elder's job, is not so much to sort out what happened or is this really an offense against the word of God, but why have we come to this place where there's still an impasse? What is it that is being not effective? And maybe the way the first stage or the second stage was handled wasn't everything it should be. And for that reason, the person hasn't been won over. On the other hand, maybe they have been very effectively handled and this person has just become so stubborn and hard of heart that they're not willing to listen to anybody anymore. Now, this is a problem I have personally with our book of discipline. But it's really written on the assumption, or maybe not the conscious assumption, but at least the assumption in effect, that when a matter comes to a session for adjudication, for, for disciplinary attention, nobody knows what in the world has gone on, and so you start with a trial that is designed to establish the truthfulness of the facts in the case. And much of what our book of discipline says has to do with procedure of how to try somebody to find out what really happens, who should be witnesses, what should be the documents, and so forth. Because the session without a trial is to determine whether or not, if such and such a thing took place, it's a real offense against the word of God. So the interpretation of the facts isn't established by a trial. Just the question of what has happened. And to the extent that we are bound to reestablish the facts through a trial, I think oftentimes effective discipline is slowed down just that much. Because in cases where the facts are agreed upon, and where maybe the biblical interpretation is agreed upon, the fact that you have to then start all over again, and with the time delays, which are considerable, designed to protect people's rights, and I'm not against protecting people's rights, you really end up taking a big step backwards in formal church discipline to, in effect, start at the beginning again and prove everything that's already happened before you can move on to do what an elder uh, or a session ought to do in really confronting by the authority of Christ that unrepentant person and calling them to change. Well, I'm not really uh, prepared to advocate how I would change the black book if I had the chance. Suffice it to say, I'd change the black book if I had a chance. <laughs> At least to introduce another track so that we would say in the case where uh, church discipline originates on the sessional level, 
they need to make sure they've got all the facts straight by having a trial or something like a trial and decide if it's an offense against the Word of God and so forth. But if something comes through Matthew 18 to the attention of the session where everybody agrees what the facts are and that it's an offense, then the session can immediately proceed to exhorting and rebuking and correcting by the authority of Christ and censuring if necessary so that that concern that the Scripture has of handling matters quickly can be used. I mean, I think any of us who are elders here have seen church discipline go awry, maybe for lots of other reasons, but sometimes just because it takes so long to effectively bring the discipline about that by that time people have drifted off or if it's a notorious sin, the church can be totally in an uproar. I know Jay Adams has talked about uh, the, uh, the relative impossibility of doing what Titus is told to do with a factious person. Here's somebody whose sin is to disrupt and divide the church. And Paul says that kind of factious person should be warned once and then rejected. Well, if you follow the book of discipline according to the way it's laid out with trials and so forth, it's just not possible to exhort them once and, and then reject them or discipline them while they're splitting the church until months, perhaps, have taken uh, place in working through this procedure. So I really do think we need in our book of discipline at least a separate track so that we can handle expeditiously matters where there isn't any contention over what has happened or whether or not it is an offense against the Word of God. Well, you can tell the Presbytery about that and about me and we'll see what happens. Okay, well, I've got to press on here real quick. I want to say a word about the seriousness of refusing to hear. Because as I've mentioned already, this is what moves the discipline from one stage to another. We've already noticed that, and I've tried to stress it, but I want to say it once again, because it's very, very critical, especially that a person under discipline realize what danger they are in when they come to that place that they're not going to listen to the Word of God anymore as it's brought to bear by an individual believer, or by a small group of believers, or then finally by the church. You see, refusing to hear what God has to say through the church, through his people, is an evidence of a hard-heartedness and a stubbornness under the ministry of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And that's a very, very serious thing. No matter what you did to initiate the problem, nothing compares with the dangerousness of being unwilling to listen when the Holy Spirit calls us to repent. And that's what moves from step one to step two and from step two to step three. It's interesting in looking at verses 16 and 17 that this is even manifest in the way Jesus describes this brother's response. In verse 16, it says, but if he will not listen. But in verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen. And the Greek there in those two words is an intensification. In the first instance, he just won't listen to what you have to say. But in the second instance, it's kind of a settled, calculated, deliberate refusal to listen to what is said. So you can see emerging, even in the way Jesus describes it, an intensified hardness of heart, an intensified heedlessness that becomes an increasing problem. Now, we're going to talk about censures next time. But let me just note here, because it's part of this 17th verse, that the ultimate outcome of that kind of heedlessness is to be put out of the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, says Jesus, treat him as you would a pagan 
or a tax collector. Treat him as you would a non-believer. To be cut off from the body of Christ, to be cut off from the body of believers and handed over to Satan is very serious. Why should heedlessness lead to that kind of penalty, that kind of censure? Well, I think the reason we find in John 10, where we find that to fail to listen to the shepherd's voice is the clearest evidence, perhaps, that we have that a person is not one of Christ's sheep. If you turn over there to John 10 for a moment. In verses 2 and following, Jesus says, The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. Now, you and I know that God has called us out of all kinds of sin by his voice of grace and invitation. Whether we were adulterers or whether we were murderers or whether we were disobedient to parents or whether we were idolaters or whether we were all of the above, what brought us out of darkness into light was that God effectually called and we heard his voice and we followed him. And so the real mark of a Christian is that willingness to listen to what the shepherd says, to listen to what the voice of the shepherd says in Scripture and to heed it and to follow it. And our salvation depends completely upon our ability, our willingness, by the grace of God, to hear the shepherd's voice. And if we ever cease to hear and follow the familiar voice of Jesus Christ, then we will die in the wilderness. We'll stop following. We'll wander astray and we will come under destruction. And that's why hearing and heeding is so critical a matter to this concern of church discipline. In verses 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I do need about five more minutes. If somebody would like to encourage the children to just hold it down for a second out there, I, uh, I think that would be helpful. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. You see, what makes a sheep is not that you're a Jew, because Jesus has Gentile sheep that he's going to call too. But the, the thing that will call the Gentile sheep is his voice. And that which calls the Jewish sheep is his voice. So his calling, his voice is critical to our ability to hear. And so in verse 24 and 20 through 28, Jesus has these chilling words to say to the Pharisees. I did tell you. They were asking him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's the question. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. See, not believing, not listening, not hearing, and not being his sheep are the very same part of the, uh, part of the very same problem. Because my sheep listen to my voice, says verse 27. 
I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, I don't know of anywhere else in the Scriptures where Jesus announces reprobation to somebody while they're still alive. But he says to these Pharisees, You are not my sheep because you don't listen to my voice. And in church discipline, when someone who is a sheep, a member of the flock, a part of the body of Christ, refuses again and again and again to hear what Jesus says through his word from the mouths of his brothers and sisters in Christ, ones, twos, threes, and then finally through the whole church, can draw no other conclusion, nor can the church draw any other conclusion, that they do not belong to Christ. And that's why Jesus says, after repeated refusals to hear and to heed, the church must treat such a one, not as a brother, not as a fellow lamb or sheep, but as a non-believer, an outsider, an exile. Now that's important to realize because oftentimes somebody under discipline, even excommunicated, is still going to claim, I'm a Christian. I still believe in God. I still believe in Jesus. They may even say, I still believe in the Bible. I just don't believe in how it applies to me. So church discipline doesn't turn professors into deniers. Matter of fact, I don't think I've met more than one in my experience in 15 years of someone under discipline who agreed with the church's verdict and said, yes, I'm not a Christian. Almost all of them say, oh, well, I'm still a Christian. You guys just don't understand me. Well, if church discipline is properly and faithfully administered, then the church passes a judgment on an individual that they are not willing to consent to themselves, but is nevertheless true that because they do not hear the shepherd's voice, they do not belong to the shepherd's fold and are to be treated as outsiders rather than as members of the body of Christ. Now, because of that great seriousness of hearing and heeding the word of God, it behooves you and I to think about how well we do listen to the voice of the shepherd when we're not under discipline. Because if you may imagine that you can give slack and unheeding attention to the word of God when you're not under discipline, then don't imagine that all of a sudden you're going to change your attitude when you do come under discipline. And so we ought to repent of our slackness in hearing and heeding the word of God when it manifests itself in different ways. Do you really listen to sermons and Bible study lessons that you hear? Do you really think, how can I put this into practice? How can I make this my own? How can this change my life? Or do you say, well, yeah, I've heard this all before, and I've got other things to worry about, so I, I, I heard it, I remember it, but that's about it. If we give careless ears to the hearing of God's word, we are beginning to rebel against God. Bruce Walkey, who is now a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, wrote of the Emperor Constantine that he would stand while the Word of God was read in the church. Because manuscripts were scarce at the time, a large part of the church service was spent simply reading the Bible. On one occasion, the reading went on for more than two hours. Constantine was tired, and an attendant suggested that he sit down. Constantine replied, It is wickedness to give negligent ears to the Word of God when it is read. It is an act of unbelief, of negligence, of wickedness, not to heed what God has to say. So we can prepare to hear the shepherd's voice when we are disciplined, 
by hearing his voice when we're not being disciplined, or more accurately, when we're being disciplined positively by being taught and instructed. When the elders admonish us to do certain things or to desist from other things, do we give careful attention to their admonitions and follow what they have to say? Are you selective in your willingness to apply the Word of God to your life? Certain non-threatening areas, you're willing to listen, pay attention. Certain sins that aren't your favorite, you're willing to repent of and change. But there are other things where you just say, mind your own business, God. Or are you partial in your hearing? You'll take your obedience so far, but no farther. You see, it's a very, very serious matter for us to stop listening to the shepherd's voice and following him. And in the setting of church discipline, it becomes the most critical of the problems that we have and leads to the serious judgments that God brings through church discipline. Well, just finish up real quickly on uh, Lesson 6. I uh, got to page 18 in the outline and wanted to say a word about the authority of the church in the ministry of discipline. The authority of the church in the ministry of discipline because Jesus has something very important to say about that. And as I mentioned, oftentimes when people come under discipline, uh, they very strenuously dispute the authority of the church in church discipline. Oftentimes people will leave and say, you uh, brothers can't tell me what to do. I'm out of here. And uh, so they, in uh, practical terms, reject the authority of the church. So it's good for us to remind ourselves that it is Jesus himself who stands behind the elders and behind the church, authorizing them to administer discipline in his name. In Matthew 18, verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is the one who confirms the authority, really bestows the authority for binding and loosing on the church. Now in Matthew 16, verse 19, that authority to bind and loose is called the keys of the kingdom. If you look at verse 19 in chapter 16, just a couple of chapters before, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So it is the authority of the keys of Jesus Christ himself, and it is also a ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church. That comes out in Jesus' comments in John chapter 20, verse 23. After he rose from the dead and on the eve of his ascension, uh, he gave to his disciples authority by bestowing the Spirit upon them, and now the Spirit in his unique character as the Spirit of the risen Christ, the Spirit of the glory of the new covenant age, and in verse 23 of John 20, Jesus says, as he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So a little different language, but the same idea. Binding, not forgiving. Loosing, forgiving. But here it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As I say, the authority of the church and church discipline isn't very popular. It's often misunderstood by many evangelical Christians. But Jesus has entrusted to the elders of his church, his under-shepherds who minister by his word and in his name, the authority to admit people to the church 
and exclude people from the body of the church. Now, because of the development of evangelicalism in American culture, we really have uh, tended to emphasize the importance of the individual decision for admitting or excluding from the body of Christ. And so the key event in someone's conversion experience is when they choose to give their life to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that kind of a decision and that kind of commitment is unimportant, but the scripture does not say that people admit themselves to the body of Christ, nor does it allow a person to exclude themselves on their own authority from the body of Christ. Any more than a sheep can admit himself to the fold, or a goat admit himself to the fold as a sheep. That responsibility of admitting or excluding is entrusted to Jesus under shepherds. I remember telling one of my fellow ministers one time that it's not possible to become a Christian in the privacy of your own living room. You need some elders. And uh, after he tore his hair out and ripped his clothes and threw ashes on his head, he said, what are you talking about? Of course you can become a Christian. Well, if being coming a Christian is not simply a matter of having a heart commitment to Jesus Christ, but being identified as his people, which I believe is the biblical doctrine of being a Christian. There is no difference between being a Christian and a church member if both of those ideas are properly understood. Then you have to have a shepherd that is going to admit the sheep and exclude the goats. And without that, there is no church. And therefore, in a covenantal sense, there is no Christianity. But I'm afraid we've gotten so used to the idea that in American culture, pretty much everybody's a Christian, more or less. You know, it's hard to find a real hardcore atheist out there. It's hard to find somebody who says, I hate Jesus Christ with a purple passion. Everybody believes in him, everybody likes him, and everybody ignores him. Right? And so we sort of imagine that there's a whole bunch of people out there who are Christians or semi-Christians or maybe Christians. But Christ has given to his elders the authority to admit and exclude from the body, and that makes their work of discerning the credibility of the profession of someone who has given their heart to Christ, and their administration of discipline very, very important. And Jesus underlines this by stressing the eternal consequences of the biblical determinations of the church. In verse 18, there in Matthew 18, the verse we just read, the NIV uh, translates this, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But the tense of the Greek verbs there is better brought out by saying, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That is, the, earth, the action of the church, when done properly in accordance with Scripture by the authority of Christ, reflects a divine interpretation, a divine judgment, a divine act of jurisdiction. So Jesus is saying, I stand fully behind the work of my elders in the church as they bind and loose if they follow the scripture and if they administer this discipline in my name. Now that's a fearful authority, and when the nickel finally drops in any elder's mind concerning the nature of that authority, he is driven again to say as Paul does, who is sufficient to administer that kind of authority in Jesus' name? And we are driven back again and again to the resources of Christ, of Spirit, and His Word in order to do the work properly. It is an awesome thing to delegate to fallible human beings that kind of authority. But Jesus does it, and He promises to bless it. 
Now, the other two things to notice just before we go on to the next lesson is the urgent necessity of prayer to the whole process of church discipline. In verse 19, Jesus says, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now, yesterday I mentioned that that agreement is a fairly comprehensive agreement in the whole administration of restorative discipline within the church. But it does underline the importance of prayer. Whatsoever you ask, agreeing in this way will be done for you. And so there are powerful promises attached to the prayers of God's elders and the prayers of God's church as they administer discipline, asking that it will bring forth its fruit of restoring and healing and reconciling people within the body of Christ, as well as bringing purity to the church and glory to the name of Christ. The power and authority of the unique presence of Christ is what makes the authority of the elders so strong and what makes the power of their prayers so effective. Jesus promises there in verse 20, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. He stresses that he is going to be personally present in a unique way in the church, especially when it is engaged in faithful discipline in accordance with the Scripture. Now, I remind you what Jesus says in the Great Commission. He says, Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And so Jesus has given a general promise to the church to be present in all of its activities throughout this whole age until he returns again. So with that general promise of the presence of Christ, how much more wonderful is the fact that he promises to be present in a unique way, in an intensive way, when the church administers discipline faithfully in accordance with the word of God. So when the church is shepherding by using discipline, the chief shepherd himself is present and by his spirit is active to teach and to exhort and to correct and to restore. So if we listen to what he has to say and heed it and act accordingly, we are responding not to men, but to God. We are responding to the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd himself. Well, you get a glimpse of that kind of direct involvement by the Lord Jesus in the discipline of his church when you read the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, where Jesus addresses disciplinary letters to the seven churches, commending in a couple of cases, but then in most cases commending and correcting through the messenger, and some have argued that's the angel or perhaps the pastor or the elders in that church. Jesus says, I am there at the door knocking. Now, although that's used in only one of the letters, the idea, I think, uh, is conveyed in all of the letters. This is Christ personally and immediately present with his church, seeing her, evaluating her, and then directing and correcting her life by writing these letters through the messengers to the churches. And John was to write them down and send them out to those churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that we'll look at a little bit later, so we won't turn to it right now, Paul says, when he administers discipline from a distance, I and the Spirit of Christ who is in me administer this discipline. So there again, the idea of the presence of Christ is there. So although men are very prone in our day to reject the authority of the church, we need to understand that such rejection is a blasphemous rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And that doesn't mean that the church is infallible. We are not papists. 
but we do realize that when the church acts in accordance with the word of God, it is Christ who is acting through his spirit and confirming and establishing the actions of the church. And that's what makes church discipline such a wonderfully promising and hopeful enterprise. Because if it was just men disciplining, we wouldn't have any real hope of it being effective. But the fact that it is Christ disciplining and Christ keeping his promise gives us complete hope that it will accomplish its purposes for Christ is in the work in a special way. Well, we need to move on to Lesson 7, and uh, 